Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Dean Reuter, uh, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Uh, I'm the moderator of our uh, today's program on third-party litigation financing. Thank you all for coming. We took a, a vote among the panelists. We've all agreed we're going to make our remarks while seated, so I hope you can see us well enough. Certainly you can hear us. Uh, we started our discussion actually at the table. It turns out that we pretty much solved all the disagreements on third-party litigation, so we're canceling the panel. Um, what we're going to do here in terms of format, we're going to have opening remarks from each of our panelists. We're going to go straight down the table, about six to eight minutes for each panelist, then we'll have some back and forth. Uh, I might have a question or two, but uh, as we always do, ultimately we'll be looking to you for questions. We have a floor mic, we're recording the event, uh, so make sure to wait until the floor mic gets to you. Uh, identify yourself if you'd like and, and then ask your question, and please do make sure you have a question in mind when you begin uh, your statement. Um, with that, uh, I, I'm going to briefly introduce people, uh, our panelists today, and thank them in advance for their participation. Uh, this is going to be a lively discussion, I assure you. We'll hear first from Professor Erin Hawley uh, to my immediate left. She's a professor at the University of Missouri School of Law. Uh, she joined that school in 2011, following several years as an associate at King & Spaulding here in Washington. She has worked at the Department of Justice. Um, as counsel to Attorney General Michael Mukasey and at Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, she's a former clerk to Chief Justice Roberts and to J. Harvey Wilkinson of the Fourth Circuit, uh, Yale Law School grad and Texas A&M uh, undergrad. So thank you for being here. Uh, I don't know if that was for Yale or Texas A&M. But... <laughs> no, nobody gives a hoo-hoo to, uh, to, to Yale anymore. But. Uh, Next, we'll hear from Professor Brian uh, Fitzpatrick. He's at Vanderbilt uh, University School of Law uh, in Tennessee. Uh, his research there focuses on class action litigation, federal courts, judicial selection, and constitutional law. Uh, he was the John M. And John M. Olin Fellow at NYU School of Law. Uh, he graduated first in his class from Harvard Law School. Um, when I went to law school, I didn't know there was a first in the class. That was so far off my uh, radar screen. Um, yeah, he clerked uh, for Judge O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit and then Justice uh, Scalia uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, of course. Very pleased to have you with us today, uh, Brian. Uh, then, when, then we'll hear from Andrew Grossman. He is a partner, uh, heads the litigation uh, department at Baker and Hostetler here in Washington, D.C. He's also an adjunct uh, scholar at Cato. I asked him in advance of our discussion how he splits his time, and he began by answering, well, I'm full-time at Baker and Hostetler. So he's got more than one full-time job, it turns out. Um, he's a frequent legal commentator. You've probably seen him on television. He's also on radio. Too many outlets, really, to, uh, to name. Also in print media. He's testified before the House and Senate Judiciary Committee numerous times on various topics. Uh, he clerked for Edith Jones uh, right after uh, attending the George Mason School of Law and working briefly at Heritage. Uh, so thank you for being here. Uh, Andrew. Uh, finally, but uh, not least, uh, we'll hear from the Honorable Luther Strange, uh, former senator from the state of Alabama. Uh, he's uh, replaced Jeff Sessions when uh, Jeff Sessions, Senator Jeff Sessions, was confirmed uh, to be U.S. Attorney General. Uh, Luther Strange was also the former Attorney General of Alabama from 2011 forward, where he specialized in bringing public corruption uh, actions. Before that, he practiced law in Birmingham, uh, and his firm in 2010 was noted by the U.S. News uh, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms. Uh, that firm was in the top tier. So 
We've got a tremendous panel. I'm obviously underqualified to moderate, but I'll do my best uh, by turning things over uh, to Aaron. Thank you, Dean, and thanks to the Federal Society for hosting uh, this forum to discuss litigation financing. So I wanted to start just by noting sort of the major uh, and slightly remarkable, at least in my view, change um, in the American legal system that has been somewhat quietly occurring. Um, today, this panel will discuss that change, uh, namely litigation financing, and what it means to plaintiffs, to defendants, and especially to the legal system as a whole. So as we think about third-party financing, I'm starting the panel today because I wanted to take a, just a bit of a step back and sort of think about both the structure and history uh, of different doctrines uh, that have governed our legal system for a long time, such as maintenance and champerty, and other provisions um, that, that have guided the profession, and then to compare those and think about sort of the, the reasons behind uh, those common law doctrines and how they might intersect and interplay with third-party investors and how the goals of those third-party investors might often, or at least sometimes, uh, be in conflict with the plaintiffs uh, whom they support. So until recently, as many of you know, most states forbid litigation financing. Um, but low investment returns have encouraged investment firms to think outside the box, uh, as they want to do. And states have continually loosened the rules um, preventing investment uh, in litigation. Uh, this has resulted in a booming litigation financing industry. It's estimated to be worth between 50 and $100 billion. Um, in 2017, Burford Capital, one of the major players in the litigation financing industry, uh, excuse me, reported a return on equity of 37%. So not bad, 37%. Um, and according to Burford Capital's 2018 litigation finance survey, 32% of the persons interviewed and an even larger percent of survey respondents said their firms or companies use litigation finance. And this is remarkable to me. Seven in 10 United States lawyers uh, said that they have, who said they had not yet used litigation finance said that they expected to do so within the next two years. So sort of all of that background just to say that litigation finance um, is a big business um, and it's uh, being increasingly used uh, by both large and small firms. So how should we view litigation financing? Um, at the outset, again, taking that step back, when we think about litigation, we typically think about cases and controversies. And we think about plaintiffs having a concrete and particularized injury in a particular case. Thus, the United States Constitution, of course, requires that in federal cases, a plaintiff must have suffered such an, in such an injury. They must, in other words, have a real and personal stake in the outcome of the case. So principles like this uh, animated the common law doctrines that you couldn't just have a financial interest in a case um, and bring suit. Now over time, the courts of equity and then eventually the courts of law uh, eventually permitted assignees to sue on their assigned claims. So if you had a lawsuit, you could assign part of the claim, um, maybe even potentially uh, all of the claim the Supreme Court has held uh, to someone else and someone else could then bring that lawsuit. But you had to have both the right to the claim uh, and a financial uh, interest in the outcome of that claim. But the courts didn't loosen these doctrines uh, without some qualifications. Uh, so the laws in the states, these qualifications were laws against maintenance and champerty. Uh, to put it uh, in uh, the words of Lord Justice Stein, um, in modern idiom, he says, maintenance is the support of litigation by a stranger. So, so basically, if you support litigation, um, that's maintenance, common law maintenance. And champerty uh, changes it a bit, and the distinguishing feature of champerty is when you support litigation in a return for a share of the proceeds. So by definition, uh, litigation financing uh, is common law champerty. 
So champerty used to be permitted or prevented, uh, prohibited by most of the states. It was actually a tort and in some states a crime. Um, again, that's been uh, relaxed and sort of came, the, the, these doctrines against uh, uh, sort of support of a claim in exchange for a monetary share of the proceeds arose out of uh, the abuse of the system in English common law where nobles would sort of lend their name to a case. And so, so a noble would say, hey, I need some cash. Um, there's this plaintiff over there. He has a lawsuit. doesn't look very good. But if I put my name on the lawsuit, the judge knows me. And so that claim has a much better chance of proceeding. Um, now, uh, with the rise of judicial independence, which is a great thing here uh, in the United States, and also, I think, critically, uh, legal canons and ethics um, that govern attorneys, uh, those common law doctrines um, have, have mostly uh, gone away. But as we think about uh, the prohibitions, um, I, I think we need to think about how they, how, how, they, how and why they applied, um, and why the canons of legal ethics, in particular, uh, were important uh, to those doctrines uh, sort of being abolished in the United States today. So to, to return to uh, litigation financing, um, the, the legal ethics, of course, don't apply uh, to non-attorneys. Um, and what are the goals of a litigation financing firm? Pretty simple, right? They owe a duty um, not to plaintiffs, not to clients, um, but to their shareholders. So the, the goal of any um, a hedge fund or other third-party financer investing in litigation uh, is to uh, maximize returns for their investments. Now, of course, even in the contingency fee arrangement, um, you've got an inherent conflict of interest between uh, the lawyer uh, and uh, the plaintiff. Um, so we're all aware of that sort of familiar debate. If you have a lawyer uh, who's representing client on contingency, that lawyer wants to, wants to uh, get the most bang for their buck. They want to get the most money out of the case. That, mean they, that means they may want to settle earlier rather than later, or later rather than earlier, despite what their client might want. Now, all of these sort of inherent conflicts of interest, when you have an attorney on contingency fee representing a plaintiff, are mitigated, of course, by the judicial canons of ethics. Um, so we're all familiar, um, at least when I was in law school, which unfortunately is a while ago now, uh, it used to be mitigated by the, the duty uh, to zealously represent your client. Um, that duty today has been uh, replaced by the duty of diligence. Um, but it's the same sort of idea, uh, and the comment to Rule 1.3 says, a lawyer should pursue a matter on behalf of a client despite opposition, obstruction, or personal inconvenience to the lawyer, take whatever lawful and ethical measures, and here it is, a lawyer must act with commitment and dedication to the interests of the client and with zeal and advocacy upon the client's behalf. So when you have this contingency fee arrangement, you have this inherent conflict of interest, but it's mitigated by these rules of professional conduct by which, of course, a lawyer can be disbarred, um, can lose their license to practice, can lose their very livelihood. Uh, so lawyers take that uh, very seriously. As we talked about, there's no doubt that litigation financing firms owe a duty, but that duty is not owed to a plaintiff in a case, it's not owed uh, to any party in the case, but to their shareholders. Uh, their goal is simple, um, to make money, and it's no surprise that Burford Capital thus announces a 37% return. But that, uh, in uh, emphasis on investment um, can really conflict with uh, the duties owed uh, to a plaintiff. There may be settlement disputes, um, there may be uh, differences in terms of attorney work client, uh, attorney work product. Uh, litigation financier will often want to know, you know, the ins and outs of a case, um, and a lawyer might share those, which could compromise uh, attorney work product depending on the state law that applies. 
Um, and a cautionary tale, I think, is told um, by a, an Australian case. I think the name is pronounced Fostive. Um, but in this case, we see sort of a, a new role uh, for litigation financing, again in Australia. But in that case, litigation financier actually recruited the plaintiffs. They ran the litigation. They chose the attorney. They determined the settlement amount, uh, the request for settlement, and then they uh, said in their contract with plaintiffs that they were allowed to settle for 75% of the requested amount. So in essence, you have this litigation financing firm running the litigation um, on behalf of claimants who, who had never thought of running, bringing the lawsuit uh, in the first instance. So I think this creates uh, many concerns uh, for the legal system as a whole. Um, instead of having lawyers who have a duty to represent their clients with diligence, um, we have uh, investors who are interested uh, in maximizing uh, profits. So the sort of big idea or big reason um, that many people support litigation financing is they say that it increases access to justice, um, increases access to the courts. But I think a key question we have to ask here is whether access to the courts is in fact increasing um, access to justice. Um, just because you have more lawsuits uh, doesn't necessarily mean um, that everyone or anyone um, is better off. So for example, um, we uh, have, um, to, we need to consider both the quality um, and the quantity of lawsuits. When you think about the legal system uh, in America in general, uh, numerous studies have showed uh, that the tort system in particular, the legal system, is quite costly. And one of the most, I think, damaging aspects of those studies is the percentage of the return that goes to the plaintiffs. So you've got this deadweight loss, and sometimes less than half, um, depending on the year, depending on the study, goes to the plaintiffs. So you've got a big portion uh, going to attorneys, going to court fees, um, and now going uh, to litigation financing firms um, who are not bound uh, by any sort of duty uh, to, to their clients. So I will turn it over. There's a lot of people um, who have much to say. Um, but I think we need to think seriously about whether litigation funding does, in fact, increase access to justice, or instead whether it might represent the potential for another abuse um, of the legal system, uh, whereby people other than clients um, get a major share of the recovery, where litigation costs rise even more, um, and where the public's confidence um, in a, the justice system uh, could be uh, potentially further eroded. Thank you, uh, Aaron, for those opening remarks. Thank you, Dean and the Federal Society, for inviting me to speak to you today. I approach this question from a very old-fashioned Federalist Society perspective, and that is I don't think that because companies are trying to make money, that's a reason to regulate them or ban them. I don't think that because someone's getting a good return on investment, that means that we should be skeptical of these people. And I don't even think that because there are potential conflicts of interest among adults that it's uh, necessarily a reason for government to get involved. I prefer to let adults work out their conflicts with one another through contract law and uh, arm's length negotiation. So I'm a skeptic about getting government involved in the marketplace and denying products that people need um, to those people. Um, and uh, that's where I start with litigation financing. Litigation financing serves a very important need, and the government better have a very good reason before it starts denying people access to it. There's nothing new about litigation financing. We've been doing it 
on the defendant side of litigation for 100 years. It's called liability insurance. Uh, we've been doing it on the plaintiff side for uh, 200 years. Uh, it's called a key TAM lawsuit, uh, where private parties invest and get a share of what they recover for someone else, i.e., the government. Um, if we do not allow plaintiffs access to third-party financing, if the government prohibits this important financial product from being accessed, it is essentially placing a thumb on the scale uh, in favor of defendants who do have access to liability insurance. Um, let me explain why third-party financing is um, needed um, in the same way that liability insurance is needed for defendants. So liability insurance for defendants does two things. It finances litigation expenses. It gives the defendant money to hire lawyers to defend themselves. Um, and it also transfers risk of a bad outcome in the litigation from the defendant to the insurance company. This is very important. Um, defendants know they have a certain loss that they can count on year after year equal to their insurance premiums because they've offloaded the risk of litigation outcome to an insurer. This lets them invest with confidence in their businesses. It also means that litigation decisions, when to settle, how much to invest, uh, those decisions are being made by a risk-neutral party, an insurance company. Um, and this is also important because, as I'm going to explain later, if we have risk-averse parties making decisions about litigation, we distort litigation outcomes because people are worried about risk. So liability insurance serves very two very important functions in our economy. It lets litigants finance lawsuits and it lets litigants transfer risk. Plaintiffs do not have a vehicle to do both those things. They do have access to contingency fees, as, as Aaron explained, and that is very important for giving plaintiffs access to financing litigation expenses. The lawyer basically fronts them all of the litigation expenses in a non-recourse way. It's an expensive way to finance litigation, a lot more expensive than liability insurance, but it's at least a way for plaintiffs to get resources to finance litigation. But without third-party financing, they have no way to transfer risk of a bad litigation outcome to someone else. Think about a small company that has one asset, a patent. And think about this company wanting to sue a bigger com competitor that's infringing upon the company's patent. Well, uh, if the lawsuit loses, the company's out of business because that's all they have is this patent. If the defendant claims the patent is invalid and they lose the lawsuit, the company's done for. So what can they do? They can sell a portion of their claim to a third-party investor and get a certain gain and not have to worry about being put out of business by this lawsuit. Without third-party financing, uh, this company can't do that. It has to take the risk that they could go out of business with this lawsuit. That's not something, that's not a risk we impose on defendants because they have liability insurance. It also means that the company can make litigation decisions in a more risk-neutral way. They don't have to worry now about going to trial and going out of business. They can be smart about how much they invest in the lawsuit and when they settle. Why is this important? It's important because, as I said earlier, we need to be aware of the potential for risk to distort litigation outcomes. If one side of a lawsuit is risk neutral, like defendants are with liability insurance, and one side of a lawsuit is risk averse, like a plaintiff can be without third party financing, then those plaintiffs are going to be afraid of going to trial more than defendants are afraid of going to trial. And for that reason, they'll be willing to settle cases for less than they should 
and they'll be willing uh, to forego cases altogether because of the different risk profile that they face. That's bad. If we believe uh, in getting accurate litigation outcomes, having one side more risk averse than the other can be, can be bad. So is there any good reason for the government to allow defendants to have access to liability insurance, but not allow plaintiffs to have access to the functional equivalent, a product that lets them shift litigation risk? And, and, and my answer to that question is, is no. I've not heard any reason why one side should get risk financing and litigation, but not the other. Um, I will pause here to note that um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there should be um, uh, some government regulation of this particular industry. Um, for example, I, I do uh, tend to uh, agree with those people that say some form of disclosure is appropriate about third-party financing to plaintiffs. And, and I reached that conclusion because the government has already decided to require defendants to disclose their third-party financing to plaintiffs. Defendants under our discovery rules have to disclose their liability insurance agreements to plaintiffs. And if the government's going to make one side disclose their financing, the government shouldn't be tipping the scales and should require the other side to disclose their financing as well. Getting information about liability insurance gives plaintiffs strategic information about settlement pressure points on defendants, and so I don't see why we shouldn't deny that same strategic information um, about plaintiffs to defendants. Now, I just want to close on, on, on one final point, and that is I'm not here to suggest to you there aren't some downsides to allowing plaintiffs ac access to this risk financing. Our litigation system is not perfect. It has vices as well as virtues. When we allow plaintiffs access to financing, we are exacerbating the virtues and exacerbating the vices too. So for example, to the extent it is way too easy in our country, and I think it is, to file meritless lawsuits, there's the potential, I'm not sure if there's, it's been realized in actuality, but there's the potential for third-party litigation financing to result in more meritless lawsuits being brought than there otherwise would have been. There's no doubt that potential exists. The solution to that problem is not to deny one entire side of litigation access to the same risk financing the other side has. The solution to that problem is to fix the bugs in our system. We should make it harder for plaintiffs to bring meritless cases by, for example, some form of loser pays or cost sharing and discovery, et cetera, et cetera. These are reforms that people are considering right now in our system. And that's a much more targeted way to solve problems than to deny one side access to the same financing the other side has. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew Thank you, Dean. And uh, thanks to the Federal Society uh, for putting on this panel and for inviting me to participate. Uh, the risk of being on a panel like this is you have people of such great stature, um, you know, with academic experience like Professor Fitzpatrick and Professor Hawley, uh, as well as people with such great stature literally towering <laughs> over me You're as uh, stature, <laughs> Senator Strange. Um, I'm going to address some of the practical conflicts that can arise uh, in, when there is uh, involved in litigation, third-party litigation funding. I'm going to talk about a couple areas where those conflicts uh, loom particularly large and then conclude with a couple very tentative uh, concerns uh, as well as uh, questions that uh, I, I don't think have really been answered adequately. Um, so 
When we talk about conflicts, um, and I think uh, Aaron explained this very well, the most obvious conflict that can arise when you're dealing with third-party litigation funding is between the funder and the plaintiff uh, whose litigation is being funded. Um, Professor Fitzpatrick spoke about risk profiles and how litigation funding allows a plaintiff to offload risk. But there can be a problem where litigation funders versus plaintiffs can have different risk profiles. In fact, in a certain sense, it's most inevitable in practice. Uh, a litigation funder may have a portfolio of litigation investments and so can use capital allocation to hedge and balance risks. In other words, you might have one case, uh, you might have 10 different cases, each of which could have a potentially very large payoff and the litigation financer isn't necessarily interested in settling or concluding those cases for a lower amount of money. In other words, they're shooting uh, for, for a home run every single time. Uh, a plaintiff in an individual action, however, is much more likely to be risk averse. If your house burns down, you want to be compensated, at least uh, particularly if you don't have insurance. So this can play out in any number of ways. And I think the fact that there is this risk mismatch uh, is actually proven by the way we've seen that the, these agreements work. Uh, frequently, the litigation funder uh, insists on the choice of particular attorneys that uh, can be different than the choices uh, that plaintiffs would otherwise make. They often insist in their litigation financing arrangements and playing a role in legal strategy. Um, they may, in some cases, intervene to attempt to change the law in ways that might affect future cases in which they're involved. And some of the uh, litigation financing uh, agreements that we've seen um, give the funder a role in settlement negotiations. So these things are actually happening now. There can also be a conflict between the funder and the plaintiff's attorney of choice. So what happens when the funder and the attorney disagree on questions of legal strategy? Now, if the attorney wants to receive future investment uh, from the litigation funder, then of course there's going to be an incentive to go along with what the funder wants to do, and that will inevitably affect uh, the attorney's exercise of judgment. Uh, there's a saying, money talks, and I listen. Um, and attorneys are going to listen to what repeat player funders have to say. That can be a problem. There can also be a conflict between a particular litigation funder and the court. Under federal law, and state law holds the same, judges are generally required to recuse themselves when they know that themselves, their spouses, or their minor children have a financial interest in the subject matter of a lawsuit. As litigation increasingly becomes a financial asset, in other words, an investment, the impartiality of justice and the appearance of impartiality can be called into question. And the fourth conflict that I'll identify here is I think a little bit of an unusual one and maybe on the face of it a little bit counterintuitive. There's a certain type of conflict between the funder and the defendant, at least the normal status and role of a defendant in litigation. Under the American rule in litigation, parties to litigation generally bear their own expenses. And that makes litigation financing different in certain respects from other types of investments. Uh, if I invest some money in Tesla, uh, Tesla isn't going to go use that money to uh, send somebody over to General Motors' factory and knock down the wall uh, so that General Motors has to pay to uh, put it back up again. But when I invest in a lawsuit against General Motors, that money is being used to directly impose litigation costs on it uh, through legal service of process. In other words, government compulsion. And so General Motors will have to hire attorneys, respond to motions, respond to discovery requests, and so on. Litigation funders, in fact, benefit from the reputation of playing hardball in litigation, and they strive, they go to great lengths to give themselves that reputation. But it's an open question as to whether and how uh, playing out that sort of reputation, how, how that affects the litigation process. There is fundamentally a difference between treating litigation as a conflict dispute mechanism on the one hand and treating it as an investment on the other. 
Is it fair to impose the same burdens on defendants when the litigation is, in fact, an investment? And is the litigation financer essentially taking unfair advantage in some respect of the quirks of the litigation process? Now, I think there are two areas where these concerns particularly come to light. The first involves class actions and collective actions. Um, in general, class counsel, people, the attorneys who bring and put together class actions, they'll generally obtain litigation financing when they use that sort of mechanism before the class even exists. Uh, there's no way to obtain the permission of class members. Uh, there's no way to allow class members to participate in the negotiation of the funding arrangement or to approve it in any fashion. Without that crucial counterbalance, the influence of third-party litigation funders, as well as the potentials for conflicts with the plaintiff's interests, uh, is likely to be greater than it would be in other cases. I mean, think about it for a second. Most successful class actions end uh, with a pot of money to be, to be divided up among class members. Now, of course, some of it goes to the attorneys as well, and that reduces the overall take. The whole point of the financing is to get a piece of that pot of money. It's to get some of that upside action of the lawsuit. Funders' interests in that respect may well be perfectly opposed to those of class members. Every additional dollar that goes to a litigation funder is going to be taken from the class recovery. It might be worth it, it might not be worth it, but the point being is that there is this conflict of interest at certain stages of the litigation. Um, but the key point is that when the funding arrangement is struck, the class members aren't even at the table. The negotiation, which involves their rights, doesn't even involve them. Now in this respect, Third-party litigation funding stands to exacerbate the already serious conflicts of interest that are inherent in class action litigation. We've already seen, for example, a so-called C-Prey settlement, where all the money of a class action settlement goes to third parties and the attorneys, and zero dollars goes to class members. Um, those sorts of cases work out that way because they can be very lucrative, they can be very profitable uh, for class action plaintiff's attorneys bringing those cases. To the extent that litigation funding proves even more lucrative for the lawyers launching these types of consumer class actions, it will presumably take over and be the next innovation along those lines, a way, in other words, for attorneys to monetize legal claims that belong to other people while effectively cutting those people out of some or even all of the money. That's a serious concern. Another area of concern is law enforcement. Now this is a new frontier. I've got this right here. This is just from earlier this year. This is a request for a proposal from the uh, DC Office of the Attorney General where it's asking for law firms uh, to uh, submit proposals to sue ExxonMobil over misleading the public about global warming. They're seeking money damages. And the innovative part of this request for a proposal is that it specifically authorizes the law firm to sell off the contingency interest in the litigation to a third party funder. So in other words, you could wind up with a hedge fund or some other investor uh, effectively owning the financial upside of the exercise of the state's police powers, the state's law enforcement authority. Now, we've seen a surge of this type of litigation without the third party component in recent years. Uh, and many of these cases involve what could politely be called uh, innovative legal theories, uh, generally brought against public corporations by private attorneys uh, who have made deals with, in general, local governments. And many of those do involve global warming. And to be fair, so far, most of those cases have not gone very well for the plaintiffs. But of course, that's been a very controversial practice, and I think rightly so. It raises all kinds of policy and due process issues, because in effect, a private party is wielding government power and ultimately, in some respects, prosecutorial discretion. Litigation financing only increases those concerns. I mean, in effect, 
you're likely to wind up with a circumstance where financiers are pitching government officials to rent their law enforcement authority and then wield that government law enforcement authority against particular people or businesses. That's in fact what's going on with this DC solicitation here. And of course in those lawsuits there's no need to expend government resources, there's no real downside risk to the government official who signs off on it, and they might even have a possibility of a payoff in the end. Is that really how law enforcement decisions are supposed to be made? I don't think so. So in closing, let me offer a few tentative conclusions. First of all, it's not at all obvious that third-party litigation funding is justified from an overall welfare maximization point of view. Litigation costs are a deadweight loss. Unlike investing in a new technology, investing in litigation contributes nothing to economic productivity or growth. It only increases costs. Financing may help plaintiffs in some cases, and I don't want to discount that. But we should ask whether the cases that go forward because of financing are ones that should be going forward, in other words, that are overall efficient. I think we can all agree that it would not be a better world if every possible claim that could conceivably be litigated ended up being filed in court and litigating to the utmost. Now, how far litigation financing takes us in that particular direction, and whether it's too far, that's a serious question, and I don't think we have a good sense of the answer to that. Second, that particular kind of cost, as well as the other risks of litigation financing, are particularly heightened in the two areas that I discussed, class actions and law enforcement. And it's worth considering whether third-party litigation financing in those areas should be permitted at all. The law in many states does not permit law enforcement for hire. I think that's a good thing. And third and finally, I agree with Professor Fitzpatrick. I believe that at a minimum, disclosure of third-party litigation funding makes sense across the board. Disclosure is necessary to assess ju judicial recusal obligations, to permit courts to uh, police uh, potential conflicts of interest that may injure plaintiffs and class members, and to allow courts to consider cost shifting when that's an appropriate part of litigation. Uh, as he pointed out, we already require defendants to disclose insurance coverage, so why not require the same of the other side? Thank you. Thanks, Dean, and uh, thanks again to uh, the Federal Society and uh, others for having us here today. This is a great panel and uh, old friends to talk about a really important issue of uh, law and public policy. And uh, thank you, Andrew, for, for giving me that great segue into the law enforcement world, because I'm going to put on my um, old AG's hat for a minute and talk a little bit about the uh, public interest side of these cases as opposed to just the purely commercial civil litigation side, which has been covered uh, really well. Uh, the trend now has become more and more for AGs, state AGs, who do hold the awesome police power of their states, to uh, go into partnership, if you will, with private plaintiff lawyers, bringing cases um, to remedy some uh, societal um, issue. The best example we could talk about today would be opioids. Uh, it's in the news. It's very uh, popular. You mentioned the global warming issue. Um, and that's concerning to me because of the issues that have already been raised. What are the uh, incentives? Uh, the, the state attorney general, the law enforcement uh, folks have a specific mission to make sure justice is done for their citizens, to make sure that uh, uh, bad behavior is stopped through injunctive relief. That may be their goal. It may be to recover damages and so forth if some harm has occurred. Um, that's their sole goal. Their taxpayers pay them to do that. Uh, they report to their taxpayers. When you inject in a third party, uh, starting with the plaintiff's firms that are doing the work, and then if they're funded by third party uh, funders, 
it starts to, dis in, in my uh, experience, and in, in, in my concern is it starts to distort the potential incentives uh, of the parties to get uh, ultimate justice for their citizens. You mentioned, Andrew, very well, and I won't repeat the, the various potential conflicts and so forth uh, that can, uh, can rest in, that, in those situations. But that is a great concern to me, and we're seeing more and more of it. Um, another case I want to bring to your attention that is a, a trend that uh, may or may not uh, take hold, but it has certainly gotten a lot of attention, I've written about it, is a case involving Mayor Bloomberg and uh, NYU's law school. And it's an interesting situation. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg has created something called Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies. Uh, it's a uh, fund aimed at addressing certain social issues, uh, climate change and environmental issues is his thing. Uh, he worked out an arrangement with NYU's law school uh, to fund lawyers who are interested in uh, going into this uh, field and uh, prosecuting cases, for example, against Exxon for global warming. And the arrangement is that he'll pay for lawyers to do that type of work for AGs. And so literally, um, New York State has attorneys who are assistant attorneys general who are appearing on pleadings in federal court in litigation against Exxon, uh, but being paid by NYU through the Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, they have to report back to NYU, are we doing work that is consistent with the grant that you've received from Mr. Bloomberg? Um, Etc. That is very troubling to me as a uh, former attorney general. There's certainly nothing wrong with AGs hiring outside counsel. It happens very frequently when there's a need for some ex particular expertise. But almost uh, always the rule has been up until now that that person is paid for by the office of the attorney general and the taxpayers of that particular state. That's who the attorney general answers to, and it's very uh, I mean, it's, it seems like it should go without saying, but that's a traditional way of doing it. I often think, what if uh, the Koch brothers, for example, set up a foundation and decided to fund, uh, pick a law school, uh, to fund lawsuits against a pick an industry uh, and report back to the Koch brothers? How would that uh, go over? Uh, the Bloomberg thing has not gotten a lot of attention because it's, a, it's, an, it's an issue that uh, is sympathetic in the, in, in the liberal press. It's just not publicized a lot. Although the good news is a number of states, Oregon, for example, Virginia here across the river, have looked at their state ethics laws and their statutes and have said this really doesn't pass muster in terms of our state laws and who we can uh, have uh, representing the people of our state. And it's not an unusual situation to see third parties try and have influence over governmental officials. Even in, in, in our state, we had an issue where Certain companies were, uh, or out, I'll just say outside interests because it's not necessarily just companies, were perfectly willing to, to send a loaned executive to work in the executive branch of the state government. Uh, the company would pay their salaries, which were much more than the state could pay for a comparable person. They could claim to have expertise in a particular area, but who was paying their salary? Um, that has been banned by executive order in the state of Alabama, but it's not, it's the type of thing that has a creep factor that once it's sort of accepted, uh, gee, we're a poor state, or gee, we need that expertise, and this person doesn't want to leave their job, but they're willing to take a leave of absence. 
uh, you can see where it can start leading in those cases. So the Bloomberg thing is very uh, interesting to me. Uh, if that becomes a trend, uh, it is a form of third-party financing using the power of the state, which is a great distinction in, these, in, in all types of litigation. And I know from <clears throat> representing defendants and being an attorney general, once you have the power of the government joining forces with a private party, it totally changes the entire complexion of the litigation and the risks. Um, last thing I'll mention, because it's just been in the news recently, and I'm, I'm curious about how this is going to play out, uh, but there uh, was a story recently, you've all read about the, the, the new uh, abortion laws that have been passed throughout the country. The South, particularly Georgia, was in the news. Uh, and a couple, about a month ago after the Georgia law was passed, um, a major uh, uh, billionaire, uh, you know, in, in uh, California, I won't mention his name, but you can look it up, decided that he had to do something about these laws. And so he uh, made a commitment to commit $20 million or something of his own personal fortune uh, and sent an email out to all of his friends who might have sympathetic views saying, we've got to challenge these laws. I'm going to contribute this much money of my own money, and I want you to contribute money because we need to raise millions and millions of dollars to give to the ACLU so they can litigate against these cases. It's an individual. It's not monetary. It's ideological. Is that okay? Um, you know, probably so. Where does that lead? Uh, Etc. And I'll come back and conclude because I know there's a lot of issues here to be discussed. But the, the, the things that really jump out at me in this whole issue, uh, this whole debate is, number one, what are the incentives? Uh, I see that as a, as a former AG. What incentives do I have, would I have as an AG versus what a private attorney would have? Their incentives are typically going to boil down to money, financial fees, et cetera. And that's not always, in many cases, is not the primary uh, mission of the law enforcement official or the attorney general. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of creative law in that area. Incentives, we need to think through that. And then transparency. One of the things that I did um, when I was AG was, uh, was help pass a law in our state that provided transparency in lawsuit, in, in, in legal hiring by the attorney general's office. Um, and it just seemed reasonable to me, and this is something I was doing already, but I was happy to support it, but unless I could stand up in front of the citizens of my state and say, we can't handle this case by ourselves. It's too complicated or it involves some area of law that we don't have the resources to handle. Um, so therefore, I need to hire a law firm, uh, and this is the law firm I'm gonna hire, and this is why I'm gonna hire them, because they can do something that I can't do, this is what I'm going to pay them. You are going to pay them as the citizens of the state. Um, and this is the result I expect them to get. Unless I could stand up and say those things, you know, I really uh, shouldn't probably be hiring someone. Uh, if it gets complicated to explain, and uh, then it's a problem. So transparency to me is very, very important. Usually your citizens, if you can explain why it's important, uh, they will accept that. Um, but um, that's, those are two things that I hope will come out in the discussion. So I'll stop with that, Dean. Thank you. Very good. Thank you all. Um, uh, I'm going to give folks a chance to respond, amend, correct, um, and then we'll go from there. Uh, I don't want to go right down the line, but uh, who has something they heard come after them they want to uh, respond to? Brian? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, Dean. Thank you. So first of all, I think there are special problems with government officials um, getting financing 
or hiring contingency fee firms to help them enforce the law um, that make me wonder whether it's a good idea. Um, number one, there's a whole corruption aspect to it where attorney generals that run for election get campaign contributions from law firms so that they then return the favor by giving them work once they are elected. And, and this pay for play is um, unseemly and That's something... That's purely coincidental, whatever that I know. <laughs> something we should be worried about. There's also a separation of powers problem. Um, when the Attorney General makes decisions about whether to give 25% of the state's recovery to a firm or what have you, they're making appropriation decisions that uh, are supposed to be with the legislative branch. And so I do worry about that special context. I also worry about these ideological funders. I think I can get my head around the world where we have for-profit funders. We know how to give them the right incentives by increasing penalties for meritless lawsuits and what have you. With ideological funders, they're almost by definition economically irrational actors. Um, increasing penalties for meritless lawsuits doesn't work. Uh, and so I'm actually most concerned about the ideological investors. But it is important to note we have these on both sides. Uh, you know, it's not just Mayor Bloomberg. It's not just the um, pro-choice investor in, in, in California. I don't know about the Co I don't know if the Koch brothers are doing it, but there are plenty of other conservatives that are funding special interest litigation for ideological reasons. Uh, the lawsuit against Harvard over its anti-Asian affirmative action policies is being funded by conservative, rich conservatives. So um, it's something that goes on on both sides, and so we have to be careful how we deal with it. But it does concern me greatly. Um, I think I'll probably just stop there and leave more time for the others to chime in. Aaron, you, it looked like you were going to say something. Sure, I'll jump in here. Um, so, so two sort of concerns. Um, one, as Professor Fitzpatrick mentioned, there is uh, certainly the potential, um, if not the eventuality, that increased funding and increased litigation funding will, will increase um, the number uh, and amount of meritless lawsuits. So we have to think whether uh, and how to handle this. As Professor Fitzpatrick said, um, there are a number of different penalties that you can um, and perhaps a good public policy to impose um, on uh, those who might bring meritless lawsuits, such as uh, defendants, or excuse me, losers pay. Um, you could also increase the standards, increase the, the um, uh, standards to get a case. Uh, into court um, or higher the standards, or like, excuse me, lower the standards for a motion to dismiss, uh, which would increase the standards to get a case into court. So you could do all of those things, um, but the fact is that the American legal system, I think, is the only, certainly one of the only systems uh, that does not currently have loser pay. And that's been the case for a very long time. And while there may have been proposals, um, nothing is, is imminent or on the table. Um, so to say loser pay is a better option is not to say. Um, that litigation financing uh, is good. And I think particularly in the context of class actions. Because even if you take it as, uh, as a fact, um, which I think there's some difference when you look at um, uh, insurance uh, versus litigation financing. On the one hand, insurance uh, takes place prospectively. So a company is buying insurance, which by the way, not all defendants are able to, uh, uh, to purchase uh, financially, or for whatever reason, not all defendants have insurance. Um, but even assuming that they do have insurance, um, it's prospective, uh, whereas litigation financing is coming in um, after a presumably discrete event. So you've got differences among uh, insurance and litigation financing. Um, and even assuming uh, that those, those differences are not enough to cause any sort of differential uh, among 
their distribution, I think when you're talking about class actions, uh, you don't have the same risk profile for plaintiffs uh, as you do uh, in the normal uh, lawsuit. So even assuming uh, that you might have a risk-averse uh, plaintiff who's suing a company, when you get hundreds or thousands of those plaintiffs who have very little at stake. Uh, by definition, a class action uh, exists to aggregate claims. You aggregate all of those claims, and individual plaintiffs may not have much at all at stake. Uh, then uh, I don't think you have that same sort of risk profile uh, that Professor Fitzpatrick was talking about. And in fact, I think the risk uh, falls primarily uh, upon the defendant um, who now has uh, a large pressure to settle uh, because of the chance of an adverse uh, judgment on not one claim uh, but on hundreds or thousands of claims. So even if we think insurance uh, means that we should have litigation financing, I think it's a different story when it comes to class actions. Um, so. Dean, I'm going to jump in, and then I promise I'll shut up. On the uh, mm -hmm. on the class action point, um, you know, I'm a scholar of class actions. I have a, an article about third-party financing and class actions, and I want to say two things about it. Uh, first of all, I do think that Aaron is right, that the costs and benefits in the class action context are different because defendants face a lot of risk in class actions once a class is certified. The prospect of having one jury decide hundreds, thousands, millions of claims at once makes it a very risky proposition for defendants if they don't have liability uh, insurance. Even if they do, maybe the liability insurer is, um, gets risk averse in the face of a class action. So I, I do think that this, the typical story of a risk-neutral defendant versus a risk-averse plaintiff does shift some in the class action sphere. Again, I would prefer a procedural solution to that problem. I, I think it's a problem even without financing uh, that defendants face too much risk over going to trial in a class action, and there are proposals to make class action trials less risky that I have long endorsed, and I think we should consider procedural solutions to some of these procedural problems instead of cutting off financing. But I second thing I want to say is, the notion of third-party financing in class actions is really something of a fiction, and I have to respectfully disagree with Andrew on this. Um, it's very difficult to use third-party financing in class actions because um, the third-party financing, the typical agreements are with the plaintiffs. The plaintiff signs an agreement that says, I give you 50% of my recovery if you give me $2 million right now. That's impossible to do in a class action because there are thousands or millions of class members and we can't sign them all up. So this, um, this fear that Andrew has that the class action lawyer will enter into a deal with a funder that will pledge some of the class's recovery later does not exist. It's impossible uh, and it's never been done. The, possibility in class actions is for the class action lawyer to pledge a portion of the class action lawyer's recovery. The class action lawyer's fee, the lawyer could try to pledge that to a funder. That's not going to reduce the class, the class's recovery. It's just going to come out of the lawyer's fee. The lawyer could try to do that in a class action, but there's a problem with that too. We have a rule in this country against fee splitting. You're not allowed to split your attorney's fees with non-lawyers. So unless your third-party financier is another lawyer, you can't do that either. So it's actually really difficult to use third-party financing in class actions unless you just get a loan from a, a financier. You can get non-recourse loans that they will lend to law firms that have high interest rates and you don't have to pay back the loan if you lose your cases. Um, that's the way it's typically done in class actions. These, these other uh, situations just really haven't arisen yet because they're very difficult to pull off. 
I feel the need to respond to that. I think it's a practical matter. I agree with the, the, the practical difficulties um, that you identify. But as, as a factual matter, these sorts of arrangements have actually been employed in class actions. There have been discovery battles in a number of class actions uh, regarding um, litigation financing documents. And some of those have involved the type of litigation financing that we're talking about here. And the question has been the exact parameters of those agreements and the degree of control and how it affects class recovery and things like that. So. Uh, it is the reality, even if, as I agree with you, it probably shouldn't be under uh, existing rules uh, that would seem to make it difficult or impossible to do. As a theoretical matter, it's impossible. As a practical matter, uh, it's happening. Well, you'll have to send me those citations, Andrew, because I'm just not aware of a situation where lawyers have agreed to give a portion of the class's recovery to a funder. Uh, that would need judicial approval. It, it would be, I think, it, impossible to, to take the money after the settlement is entered without someone knowing that the money's been taken. Well, in at least one instance, there's been a case where there was a, it was part of a contingent interest that, yes, did have to be part of the settlement approved by the court. So I'm aware of at least one case involving that. And I agree with you, in other cases, uh, the percentages going to the funder have come out of the portion ostensibly earmarked to the attorney's fees. Um, but, you know, it's just sort of an accounting entry. In other words, it is all coming out of the settlement proceeds. And one last point, and that is about control. Most of the concern with third-party financing that I hear up here that comes from the conflict of interest sphere is about the third-party financier controlling the litigation, having a role in whether to accept a settlement offer, for example. Now, the reputable funders all swear up and down they are completely passive and they exercise no control over things like settlement decisions and litigation strategy. They give advice and they don't exercise control. Now, I don't know if they're lying or telling the truth, but if we're worried about the control thing, I think that's an easy regulation that frankly no one would oppose. If we wanted to say third party financiers are not allowed to exert control over taking a settlement offer, I think no one would oppose that rule. What about choice of lawyer? Well, I mean, I, I think you're going to probably work that out on the front end. The funder's probably not going to fund the case if they don't like your lawyer. Um, and I wouldn't want to fund a case if I didn't like the lawyer. My skin is in the game as the funder. I think I should be allowed to turn down a case if I don't like the lawyer. So when you say choice of lawyer, if we're talking about making these decisions on the front end, I think both the funder and the client should have veto power over who the lawyer is. If you don't like the lawyer, the funder can say, I'm not funding your case. If the client doesn't want to switch lawyers, the client can say, don't fund my case. These are adults. They are allowed to enter into voluntary transactions. I want to get back to, and I want to get the audience involved momentarily, so be thinking of your questions. Uh, one concrete example that uh, Andrew brought up, and I think uh, Luther Strange brought up as well, and that's the public, uh, public nuisance climate change uh, suits. Um, and if there's something distinctive about these, and it does involve the, 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 the I guess, the outsourcing of government power, perhaps. Um, but I've seen some of these cases, they keep popping up everywhere. Uh, there's quite a few of them. Uh, several have been dismissed by um, district court judges uh, who, who have noted that they're the improper forum. They're not the right forum for this, uh, which makes me wonder about uh, the climate change nuisance suits in particular. Is there something unique about those? Is there something special about those? Are these uh, plaintiff's firms going looking for lawsuits in, in one municipality after another? And, do, and, and if that's the case, does that matter? Does it matter whether or not somebody with 
uh, a, a cognizable injury goes looking for financing or plaintiff's firms go looking for a government to bring a case? <laughs> That's a great uh, question. And, and uh, I've actually written on this recently because it is a, a blooming uh, problem around issue around the country. And that is the bringing of these uh, public nuisance cases is what you're talking about yeah. in, the, in the climate change area. It's also the basis for a lot of the opioid cases, but it'll also be used against almost any other uh, broad social issue that lawyers uh, either, they're either frustrated the legislature or the executive legislature or the executive branch won't actually address, so they take it to the court system, which is, as these judges have pointed out, in dismissing the climate change lawsuits, the last place that you want to settle climate change policy is in a district court in San Francisco or in New York. Uh, I've actually written a, a law review article that's in the University of South Carolina's most recent uh, uh, publication, and it's about these municipalities bringing public nuisance claims. Um, and if, to give you an idea of where I'm coming from, it says the title is Prescription for Disaster. Uh, in a lot of uh, ways. It, 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 it gums up the system. It prevents the ease of settlement of large cases. Uh, it implicates the issues we're talking about here with funding because it used to have 50 AGs in the territories and bringing cases on behalf of their states. Now, in, just in the opioid world, you have 2,000 towns and cities and municipalities. And lawyers have gone to those towns and municipalities and said, uh, you should get uh, Probably because, I think their pitch is probably, look, you got left out of the tobacco windfall. You ought to really sign up with us. You don't have to pay if we don't recover anything for you. Um, and so now you have thousands of cases. So you have an attorney general who's looking at the defendants in these cases uh, with their own causes of action. In some cases, they have outside lawyers representing them. In some cases, they don't. But they also have to look in their rearview mirror when they go into court because uh, 16 cities and towns and counties show up in the courtroom and say, well, I'm actually representing the uh, you know, citizens of Birmingham. Uh, duplicative recoveries, uh, uh, duplicative claims, uh, all kind of complications get thrown into the mix when you do that. The, the thing I don't know, Dean, is what, how, how uh, significant the third party funding part of this has, has, has seeped into that that uh, realm, because that is a huge issue, public nuisance, municipalities, uh, for the legal system. Uh, but we're just now seeing at the, the AG level, hiring of outside counsel. Again, there's nothing at all wrong with that. Uh, you just have to be able to rationalize it. In, in states from New York, has a lot of horsepower. South Dakota doesn't. You know, it depends on what the issue is. Or Alabama, you've got to decide what you need and then how you pay for it. Uh, do you hire a contingency fee lawyer that, and just say, however you pay for your discovery and so forth, that's up to you, and you reply to the court to recover that money after, at the end of the case? Or do you, uh, or does the AG uh, sit down with them and say, where are you going to get the money to finance this? And in that case, it implicates issues that Brian and others have raised about appropriating dollars, citizens' money is being potentially impacted here, the recovery could be reduced, all kind of issues there that are implicated. And, uh, you know, that's all over the map, I think. Right. Andrew Grossman, you've written on yeah. this. Yeah, uh, so, far as, so far as I'm aware, the D.C. Uh, climate lawsuit that I noted, the one, uh, the request for a proposal to sue Exxon, uh, is the first one to involve 
uh, a potential third-party litigation financing component. Um, I mean, look, truth be told, uh, bringing in outside counsel on a contingency fee basis to file these big money sort of speculative lawsuits, that is a very new and controversial process, uh, controversial thing, and we shouldn't be jaded by the fact that it's been done so frequently over the past three or four years. Um, it really raises a, a whole raft of significant public policy issues ranging from due process to separation of powers and so on. And when you add third-party litigation financing, in other words, investment uh, into the exercise of the state's police power, when you add that into the mix, uh, it just exacerbates all the pathologies uh, involved in this particular type of litigation. So that seems to be a new innovation. Uh, the D.C. Attorney General's office, so far as, I'm, uh, so far as it appears, uh, was really taken aback uh, when somebody noticed this. Uh, and uh, there was a little bit of a, a public outcry about this particular uh, litigation financing component. Uh, maybe that will be the death knell for this new innovation. Um, from my point of view, I think we can only hope because it seems to me that it's an improper use of uh, state police power. I think I saw somebody with a question here. Uh, wait for the microphone right in front here. Right in front. In cases where the uh, government is not involved as a plaintiff, um, could someone explain what their objections are to uh, you know, private uh, parties who are ideologues or public interest groups funding litigation? Because that's been, uh, you know, even Brown versus Board of Education stands on a long line of uh, cases from the NAACP, uh, the ACLU, Alliance Defense Fund. Uh, so I, I don't get what the objection to that it are, I'd like to know. Think of it like the tip of the iceberg. The part of the iceberg that you can see that these high profile, uh, you might say ideological or movement uh, type cases, they're actually a very small thing when you look at the context of the overall third party litigation financing uh, industry. That's the huge part of the iceberg that's underwater. So, you know, we see a lot and hear a lot about these ideological cases, cases brought by the ACLU or groups on the right or otherwise. But I don't, to my mind, that's not really where the greatest area of concern is because A, it's a relatively small number of cases. B, these are typically not cases for money damages. They might be in some instances, but in general, they're cases to vindicate constitutional rights and civil rights and statutory rights and that sort of thing. And I think we have a long history and tradition of using the courts in that fashion to vindicate rights, including for plaintiffs who can't afford to do that. When you're dealing with litigation, however, among private parties, that's where you wind up with this potential distorting process uh, of, of third-party litigation funding, and I think that's, to my mind, what raises greater concerns. I'm not, I want to be clear in my remarks, I, my view is not necessarily that those concerns are insuperable in all cases. Uh, it's just that they're concerns and that they should be addressed appropriately. But ideological cases, to me, uh, not really in general a big problem. My, my concern with ideological cases is that they're funded by people that are economically irrational and therefore it's very hard to stop them from abusing the system. So, you know, when I teach third-party litigation financing, the case that always causes my students the most trouble is not Burford. The case that causes them the most trouble is Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel had a grudge against the website Gawker and like 10 or 15 years later, he decided to make the company go bankrupt by funding Hulk Hogan in a lawsuit against them. And it was all secret. And if you have a billionaire, they can take a lot of sanctions before they're gonna stop litigating. And that's what concerns me. I can control profit-motivated people very easily. 
it is very hard to control people who don't care if they lose money. And that worries me. It worries me that we don't know if billionaires are funding lawsuits for personal grudges. So, uh, uh, other audience questions? Um, just one second. I'm going to ask about the, um, the issue of disclosure. Where does that, at what level does that take place? Um, I mean, Cato would disclose that it's on a brief, but is Cato supposed to disclose all its donors? Can I still give money anonymously to Cato? Um, does it, does it, is it an amount of money that, that, that's a trigger there? How does disclosure even work in, 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 a, in a case like this? And th there seems to be a line being drawn between ideological cases and non-ideological in terms of their motivation or their rationality. H how do you police that line with a policy? Well, I'm saying, you know, as to amicus briefs, first of all, amicus briefs in litigation, because they're not party briefs, you know, raise potentially different issues and are potentially less of a concern. I will say, however, that when, you know, under most courts' rules following the Supreme Court's approach, uh, when a party, when somebody does donate money to a nonprofit organization uh, for specifically to finance involvement uh, in, in a particular amicus brief or something of that sort, that has to be disclosed. But so the that, general funding of Cato doesn't have to be. Right, exactly, for the reason that Cato's general funders are funding its mission and it uses that money as it sees fits. Now, if there is some type of quid pro quo, in other words, I'll give you the money, you do the brief, uh, that presents a very different issue. Mm -hmm. But people fund groups like Cato and you know many other groups that participate in uh, amicus uh, briefs for the reason that they agree generally with those groups' principles. And so as a proper matter, those, those groups are the ones deciding to participate in the litigation and are the ones that are technically speaking for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's an appropriate way to draw the line on disclosure in that respect, because if you were to go further than that and require the disclosure of donors, it might raise in some instances issues of First Amendment privilege, or at the very least it would raise serious policy concerns regarding privacy and otherwise. What, what about the idea that there's a pretty bright line between um, hiring, as somebody's put it, I think somewhat cynically, hiring government power uh, or, or, or selling out government power versus the ideological versus non-ideological, where there's a blurrier line, I think, there. H how do you set a policy around that? I'm not sure you can. Uh, so, I mean, it's very worrisome to write a rule that responds to ideological concerns that doesn't implicate the for-profit folks as well. I think it's very hard. And you know, my understanding is uh, they debated a disclosure rule in in Texas recently, and it was basically shelved because conservative ideological donors did not want it just required to be disclosed that they were funding litigation. And so it's hard to write a rule that excludes one and, and not the other. I will say, though, I mean, there has been draft uh, language uh, considered by the, Fe the Federal uh, Civil Rules Committee, uh, as well as draft legislation that tend to draw the line uh, at a financial interest uh, in, the, in lawsuit damages. Um, or settlement proceeds, and you know, at least as a first cut approximation, that seems like a pretty, a pretty reasonable place to draw it. And I think that would distinguish out just about every single ideological case, because when somebody is suing, say, to change uh, the recognition of certain types of civil rights or something like that, there generally aren't money damages involved, and so that's simply not the type of case that would be encompassed. So most of your ideological cases. Would not be uh, would not be swept up in that type of rule. But we'd have to be careful because you know under 42 U.S.C. 1988, uh, you're allowed to get attorneys' fees if you win even an injunctive lawsuit. And so, does the donor get reimbursed if you win the attorney fee award at the end? Is that a financial interest that needs to be disclosed? I mean, it's complicated. Other questions from the audience? Uh, we've got two right here. Let's go in the, in the back first, right behind the podium. 
So my question is about um, discouraging meritless lawsuits. Ostensibly, at least, the reason that the rules are the way they are now is to allow plaintiffs to bring claims that, that have merit and to push out the claims that don't. Uh, and it's always going to be a balancing exercise. And maybe you disagree about where the line is drawn now. Maybe it should be drawn in a different place um, with losers pay. But, but if we change the system by which we discourage meritless lawsuits to allow third-party financing uh, and to prevent meritless lawsuits um, being brought by third-party party financing, then we're pushing the balance in such a way that the claims that attract investment um, will still proceed in some cases that are meritless um, if it's worthwhile to do so. And we're pushing out even more of the claims where they don't attract uh, investment and the plaintiffs should have a right to recover, you know, plaintiffs with personal injury claims or whatever. I don't want to speculate about the types of claims, but plaintiffs that have claims that don't attract investment will be even more discouraged from bringing them for fear that they'll have to bear the losses um, at the end of the claim. So how, how does that, like, how does that balancing act work if we ramp up the penalties against meritless lawsuits, meritless lawsuits? Well, I mean, I, I would say that I think we need to change our rules for all cases, even um, non-financed cases, that it's too easy for plaintiffs to file a lawsuit with no downside. And I want to give plaintiffs more skin in the game for all cases. But how about this as a compromise? How about we only go to loser pays if you're getting a third party financing as a plaintiff? Wouldn't that solve the problem of the selection effects that you're worried about? The people without financing would still have our current too easy to sue rules. Only the people with financing would get the tougher rule. Another question here in front. Well, this gentleman stole my first question, but I have another one. Um, specifically about the choice of lawyers, the third party litigation um, firms, you know, and negotiating the choices that the client might want to make themselves. But if the, both the client and the litigation firm have the same interest, winning, then would it necessarily be against the client's in interest just inherently? And then also because these litigation firms probably have experts and people who do this for a living as opposed to the client probably doesn't, wouldn't that, not in every case, but wouldn't that often work in the client's favor instead of working against them? Well, I, I think it's, so I think it's more complicated than that. You know, a litigation is not a, a binary outcome situation where you either win or lose and that's it. There can be a number of decision points along the road about strategy as well as about the contours of winning or losing. And so you might have disagreements between different attorneys as to the appropriate strategies of the case and how to best maximize the likelihood of winning. You might have disagreements about whether to, to shoot for the fences uh, and try and obtain a, a very large award, even though that might uh, reduce the likelihood of getting, let's say, an earlier settlement or something like that. And different parties, as well as different attorneys, can have different interests in how they pursue that. And the problem is, uh, that can come in in some cases, or I should say at least the concern, uh, is that you might be putting on the same team, you might be effectively forcing onto the same team, people who have different interests in that respect. Somebody who might want, uh, might be willing to tolerate the risk of a shoot for the fences judgment because you know, that's their investment strategy versus someone else who would be much more, you know, potentially a plaintiff, who would be much better served or at least they believe they would be better served by a much more certain but lower uh, potential award. Um, you know, these things can play out in a number of different ways, but yes, everybody wants to win, but there's a lot more to it than that. 
There's also choice of remedy. It's probably not a huge deal in most of the cases we're talking about, um, but class actions, for example, um, often um, there'll be injunctions uh, that are issued uh, for or against a company to do or not do certain things um, that go to the benefit of, of the class members, um, at least ostensibly. Or you might have an individual plaintiff um, who wants uh, an injunction uh, against another competitor business, a rival, those sorts of things. Um, and that might be what the plaintiff really wants, um, but both uh, a contingency fee attorney um, and especially a litigation funder would be interested in maximizing recovery. So you could also have potential um, disagreements or, or conflicts of interest on choice of remedy. Still got time for some so questions. A question over here, I oh. think, Dean. Yeah, over here in the back. Wait for the microphone, if you would, please. My question is about the rules of professional conduct. They got some mention here today, but in my understanding, any litigation financing is going to involve a lawyer, and the lawyer under the rules of professional conduct has a first duty to the client. So a lot of these questions, I'd be curious to hear how they will affect this idea of a litigation funder trying to have an undue influence in a litigation, because ultimately, isn't that lawyer putting him or herself at risk um, to his or her profession if she allows that undue influence from a funder? Uh, unfortunately, as a practical matter, uh, the answer is probably no. Um, you know, there's obviously a very wide range of conduct uh, that lawyers can undertake in representing clients that comports with the rules of professional responsibility, and it's generally only very serious deviations uh, from those duties that result in there being uh, any type of sanction to an attorney. And so if an attorney chooses to go with the advice uh, of a litigation funder, uh, in general, as long as that advice is not insane, uh, the attorney's probably going to be fine uh, under the rules of professional conduct. Now, granted, the, the plaintiff, the actual client, uh, you know, if the client forbids the attorney from going forward in a, in a particular way, um, that would obviously present a, a, a different situation, and in that circumstance, uh, the attorney might well face sanction. But as a practical matter, uh, you know, litigation is a give and take process between uh, parties as well as their attorneys. And, and attorneys obviously on a day to day basis exercise great influence on the choices their clients make. And so as a practical matter, uh, if a litigation funder has particular advice as to how it believes the litigation ought to proceed, it may well be possible to get the plaintiff to go along with that, uh, even if grudgingly, and there wouldn't, that would not really raise any type of ethical issue. Final question? That stands as our final question. Please join me in uh, thanking our panel. <laughs>